I were to say the word uh, disinformation, I would kind of expect that I would see some knowing looks on your faces. As you may have heard that word, seen it in the news or things like that, it's a little bit of a charged word in modern America. Really, this has often been a tactic among countries, warring countries, especially propaganda campaigns all throughout history. One instance in history, uh, this is even true in our own country's history, but uh, one instance from the previous century in the Six-Day War of June 1967, actually a country using, you could say, disinformation on their own citizens, I think well illustrates the power of deception and the danger of it. Sometimes, depending on who you are, the danger of the truth, but really the power of the truth. In the Six-Day War, which is between uh, in 1967, between uh, the, the state of Israel and a lot of their Arab neighbors, uh, Egypt, in particular, engaged in a little bit of a disinformation campaign on their own citizens because of how badly they were losing this war. They were caught completely off guard. Really, if you read it, it's there's much providence of God and how things happened and planes being missed on Egyptian radar and information not being relayed to who it should have been. And all of the Egyptian airfields are just destroyed before they even know what hit them absolutely cratered. The, the numbers of the planes that were destroyed are really staggering. And Israel was able to regain a lot of the territory that had been slowly taken from them or uh, treated away. But during the, as in a certain book I was reading, during this time when the information was starting to come out to the leaders with how bad it was and how demoralizing and devastating the destruction was, Egypt started putting it out on the loudspeakers and on the radio waves. Egypt is winning. We're driving them back. We're winning. We're destroying them, which, of course, is all of much of the Middle East desire for Israel. They won't even acknowledge them as a state that you are familiar with some of this. But there is this large campaign by the Egyptians to deceive their own people because of the power of not only what the Israelis did to them, which is just stunning, but also the information of that. If that got out, the people would have been demoralized. There could have been riots. They feared this really demonstrates, in that case, the danger of the truth. But when you study propaganda and people trying to deceive another country, dropping pamphlets and things by parachute from planes, you, you know the power and the danger of deception. In the letter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul is just writing a letter. We're reading somebody's mail that came to the church mailbox, and then someone stood up and read it to the whole church. Paul deals with three topics in this letter. The second letter, he writes to a young church that has faced a lot of persecution. He deals in chapter one with the persecution itself and the, the threat it poses against their faith. In chapter two, he deals with a certain false teaching that has arisen. Someone has tried to deceive them, and we'll begin to look at that today. And then in chapter three, he deals with a lifestyle issue, you could say. Someone who's not working. He's being disorderly because he won't hold a job and he's causing problems in the church. And Paul points back to his example of hard work. I've stated as a theme for the letter, you could say it this way, Paul's just writing how a church grows in grace for God's glory when they're, when they're meeting challenges, challenges of persecution, challenges of false doctrine, challenges of disorderly life. 
How does the church grow in grace for God's glory? Well, church glorifies God as it overcomes sin's challenges by God's grace. And we saw how that, how that worked out in persecution. The church meets the challenge of sinful persecution. These, these are oppressors who are coming after Christians. They're sinning. They meet that challenge and they overcome it. They endure it by God's grace and this honors God. But now you see at the beginning of chapter two, and we'll read this in a moment. Paul turns to something different. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to topic number two. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. You want a title for this? This is eschatology. He's talking about the doctrine of the end things. He's not really teaching the doctrine. He's addressing a problem. But as we look at this passage, uh, this is actually a chapter in the Bible that when theologians come to the Bible, this is hotly contested territory. So I'm not actually trying to teach a theological system tonight. I want us to really understand what Paul is saying to this church. But the theme here really of the, the, the chapter is the, the, the danger of deception, especially in these first five verses, uh, rather of the whole chapter is the title of the, the sermon tonight, calling it part one, the stabilizing effect of gospel truth. Here at the beginning, in these first five verses, our text for this evening, hope you'll notice as we read the, the danger of deception. But then in verses six through uh, 12, there's a spectacle of lawlessness. God really has made it clear that all deceivers and all lawless ones really stand in a long and definite line of everything that's opposed to Christ. You'll see that in verses 6 through 12. And then in the end of the chapter, verses 13 through 17, Paul points to the stability of salvation. And that's why I've titled the sermon, The Stabilizing Effect of Gospel Truth, Part 1. There are going to be other sermons in this chapter, but we don't have time to, to get into all the details of what he says in each part. God points to the truth of the gospel as the sure foundation on which to build strong faith against error. Let's read the chapter together. Second Thessalonians 2, God's word says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, or the King James, I think, helpfully says, is at hand. It's here. Verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who, who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the, the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive, receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. 
For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that all may be that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness but we should always give thanks to god for you brother and beloved by the lord because god has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth it was for this he called you through the, our gospel that you may gain the glory of our lord jesus christ so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts. We're going to focus this evening in the time that we have on the first five verses and the danger of deception. There is danger in deception. Deception really can set off this, this detrimental chain reaction in Christians. He's talking about being quickly shaken from your composure or being disturbed by this deception that has come in. And what's the big deal if you're just alarmed for a minute? Well, it can really it can really lead you off into discouragement and to forgetfulness and unbelief and eventually into apostasy. There's danger in deception. I want you to see tonight that how deception works. Deception destroys as it loosens the Christian's grip on the truth. I think that's Paul's point in the first five verses. Deception destroys you. It destroys your faith as it loosens your grip on the truth. So how does this work? How does this happen? I think there are three ways that Paul is drawing attention to that this happens. And first, he's telling them, I think we can learn from this, deception really can rattle your faith. The first two verses, I think, demonstrate this. We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him. This is a fundamental doctrine of their faith. This is something that is non-negotiable. They have to believe this. It's important. The Bible teaches it clearly. What has happened? What is he requesting of them? That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. This is a request that Paul makes. It's his desire for the church, and it really hints at the danger that he sees for them. And there's a lot to unpack here, maybe as, even as we read this. What is that talking about? Who is the man of lawlessness? And I'll try to answer some of those questions as we go along, but I do want you to catch the flow of what Paul is saying. And I think first notice deception can rattle your faith because Paul is talking about a truth that is really a fundamental Christian hope, Christ's return, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. This is Christ's second coming. It's his arrival. Revelation 1 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. There's definitely an element of seeing him when he returns. And there's fear of his judgment when he comes. And this phrases like this are all over the New Testament. But there's a, a, a hope for Christians that he will reign from the earth, that he will set everything right. I believe that. Uh, reference in Revelation and in Matthew 24, that's the millennial kingdom when Christ comes and sets up on his reign 
sets up his reign on the earth. But Paul very obviously connects it with not just the, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to reign from the earth, but our gathering together with him. That We would call that the rapture or some way of God bringing his people to him, whether it's the rapture or other saints. He doesn't really specify here. But this is our hope, not just that God saved us from sin and left us in a sin-cursed world, but that he's going to return and set everything right and bring in a wonderful kingdom that will Christ will reign for a thousand years and there'll be a final rebellion and then it'll be paradise when God subjects all that. We're, we're looking for Christ's return. This is a fundamental Christian hope. But even this word, you, you get a sense in the language Paul uses of of the, the tenderness of this, our gathering together with him. It's going to be with him. But Jesus used this phrase, oh, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you. Like, like a, a hen gathers her chicks. There's a tenderness to this. Jesus used a very similar wording of his return in Matthew 24 to what I read from Revelation. So in places like this, if you're really keyed in here and from a, a doctrinal standpoint, you might say Christ's return seems to be at the same time as the rapture, whereas there, there are other times that indicate a, a separation between these. So you may be aware that there are differences of opinion of what order these things will occur in. And I believe Paul does indicate an order here based on their alarm. But that's not even so much the immediate point as the fact that Christ's return for his people is fundamental. And for proof of that, I think you could point to the fact that Paul was with these Christians for just a matter of weeks, maybe a month or two. And he was talking about this. It was important enough that he made it a, a priority in their discipleship that you need to know this. Christ is coming again. This is going to happen. And this has already been attacked. This is the truth Paul is addressing, the rapture, the millennium, as we call them now. Paul isn't really giving them a doctrinal lesson. He's addressing a problem. I think you see in this second verse that the arrival of the day of the Lord is no, is no doctrine to be fuzzy about. And you see that there at the end of verse 2, to the effect that the day of the Lord is at hand. It's here. It's arrived. We've used three big terms now. I introduced the term millennium, a thousand-year rule by Jesus on the earth, a rapture where Jesus takes the saints to heaven. Now, the day of the Lord, what am I talking about? The, the prophets use this often. The, the future day of the Lord, I believe, refers to all of these future-oriented things that you kind of associate with the book of Revelation, the tribulation. Even, even the rapture, the millennium, the great white throne judgment, the destruction of uh, uh, death and hell and the new creation. This is the day of the Lord. It's the Lord's day, not in the sense of the Sabbath or Sunday, but it's the day that belongs to God. It's his day in history, you could say. And all of these things come about. But about this coming and being here, which... 2,000 years later, we would say is still future. Someone has come into the church and forged Paul's signature. That's what they did. They had spoken in Paul's name. This is a, a spirit or a message or a letter. You get the sense that Paul doesn't know exactly what happened. 
but he knows somebody came in teaching something contrary to what he had told them. A spirit might be a, a prophet, you know, God, thus says the Lord, this and this and this. Or a message, maybe a, a word, maybe somebody came and said, Paul told me to tell you this, and he stands up and delivers a sermon. Or a letter, somebody, you know, a letter showed up in the mailbox, and it's written in Paul's scribbly handwriting, or maybe. This is from Paul, signed Paul. Paul knows something happened, and it said, the day of the Lord's here. You missed something. What's the effect? They're rattled about it. They're unsteady at the moment. Don't be quickly shaken. It's something that's happened without much effort or, or thought or time. And the word here is, is like an earthquake. They've been really destabilized. They've been set off from their composure or their, their way of processing, their understanding about what's to come and how they ought to live. Don't be troubled, Paul says. Don't be alarmed by what's being said. On the other hand, uh, by the opposite side of that, you could say what he's telling them is keep believing what you've been taught. Don't abandon it so quickly at the first gust of false doctrine. Some of you who have spent time in maybe some bigger cities in California, I don't know, maybe can confirm this, but I've heard that in some of the bigger buildings in California, certainly in a place like Japan, if you, uh, in, in Japan, there are some 1,500, I believe, earthquakes annually. Japan, it's just a, right where they're positioned as a country on a major, sh uh, where the tectonic plates are or something like that. Tons and tons of earthquakes, but only six or seven per year that are considered catastrophic. And in our country, I understand California is a little bit like this. So although only a handful are considered major, many of them you can feel. And it's my understanding that if you're new to the area and you feel an earthquake, it's, whoa, is anybody else noticing this? And everybody else is just kind of walking around like nothing's a big deal because, you know, they know they have earthquake-proof buildings and they're, you know, God gave really smart people a way to make these buildings able to sway back and forth. And it's remarkable. But if you're not used to that, the slightest tremor that shakes this huge building, which is alarming, it, you're quickly, easily shaken. But the people who are used to it, they just keep going. They know when it's really a big deal, when it keeps going and things maybe start falling off the walls. And, you know, I don't know what the signs are. But this is what's happened. They've been easily shaken. They weren't ready for this. They didn't have the strength. They didn't have the experience. They're young believers. And he does quickly, I believe, turn to what they should believe and how to treat this. But I think just as we understand what he says in these first two verses, you need to realize that this is the danger of deception. It really can rattle your faith in a major way. It can put you in danger of drifting off into error and eventually even into apostasy. I think we could say it matters even what you believe about the end times. It changes the way that you behave in the present. And if, if you're led into something that's unbiblical, and we could disagree about things that are biblical, but if you're led into something that is unbiblical, that is a threat to your faith. And you see how the touchstone must be the word. So I would encourage you to be discerning about who you're listening to, about who 
you're being influenced by, who you're reading, who's leading you, who's teaching you. You know, we often say, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Maybe don't believe everything you hear on the radio. And that requires discernment, doesn't it? Thought, evaluation, testing, carefulness. And that takes time. Of course, these are young believers. They don't really have their powers of discernment probably trained yet. They had yet to grow much in that way. So perhaps evaluate yourself and be honest before the Lord. Am I susceptible here? Of course, all of us are because we're human. And what you're looking for is teaching consistent with the Bible. We, we call ourselves false Berean Bible Church. Are we studying the scriptures to see if these things are so? That takes time. That takes effort to do. Deception destroys as it loosens the Christian's grip on truth. And deception really does have this kind of force. It has the capacity to rattle your faith. Don't underestimate that. I think in a, a further aspect of the danger of deception is in its roots or, or what, what it's coming from and what's, what's feeding it. Deception has tentacles in error. Look at verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you. Someone has lied. They have been misled. And then Paul just states the bald truth. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And then he describes him who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And we'll get into some of what he's talking about, but I think Paul's point is, this is going to be obvious. Be looking for this. You're not going to miss it. This is the antidote, Paul gives. What he knows is really going to be able to treat the sickness that deception has brought. And he really just kind of shines the light of truth on their situation to answer the deception. Like if you would turn on the lights to treat the mold, right? What does mold need? It needs uh, moisture. It needs no light. It needs no air. I learned that from a landlord I had once. Actually, I still have. Paul turns on the lights, and this is, this is going to deal with the problem. He doesn't really even have to put out this whole sustained argument like he does in some places. It's just the truth. There's always some clear truth which deception will contest or debate, maybe even deny. What did Satan do at the very beginning? Did God say? He didn't say, God's wrong. That would have put it too much to their will, but he put it to their, 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 what he questioned what God said. Did God say? He debated it. Let no man in any way deceive you. Of course, there are numerous ways people try to deceive. And one is just by casting doubt on clear facts. Paul had taught a definite order of events that they should look for. And evidently, this, this false teacher, whoever he was, maybe he wasn't even poorly intentioned. He just kind of ignored him. Maybe somebody came in and said, you know, this is the apostasy. It's happening right here. That's the man of lawlessness right there. Maybe they tried to reinterpret what Paul said. But Paul kind of simply restates what he had taught to disprove this deceiver. Paul had received revelation from God that this is what's true. and It hadn't happened yet. So what is the order he refers to? What events does Paul point to? that should be such clear indicators to them of the drawing near of the day of the Lord. And it's this person 
the man of lawlessness, especially the son of destruction. Of course, he refers to the apostasy, but then he deals much with apparently the person who's going to be the most recognizable part of that. The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And then he does talk about him more in verses 6, 7, down through verse 12, and those who follow him. But I just want to focus on, on the initial deception tonight. This one is definitely coming. And Paul draws attention. We don't necessarily see it in, in the English, but Paul draws attention to this being a competing coming. And verse 1, when Paul writes with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that, that word is definitely repeated. Uh, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Uh, that, that's the word apocalypse, like what the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation. And later in the chapter, I actually failed to write down the reference, and I don't see it at the moment. But he is, he is coming. He's going to have a day where he has, there's, there's the revealing of this one, like he's God. Everything about his arrival is going to point to him being like God, and that's by his own satanic design and power by the devil. This time, whenever it is, it'll be defined by some kind of defection, apparently a religious apostasy, a defection from the truth, as well as this particular figure, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. And Paul isn't just talking about apostasy as it always exists in every age. This is a particular recognizable time, perhaps even a single event. Some even view this as a final rebellion against God in the end. I don't believe it's at the very end of time. But whatever the exact occasion is, it's, it's going to be marked by the leader of it. And you see everything about him is, is that he's terribly opposed to God. He's the man of lawlessness. He has no regard or concern for the law of God. He's the son of destruction. Does that ring a bell for you? The man described that way is Judas, the son of perdition, the son of destruction, Judas was called. He betrayed the God-man. He's destined for destruction. He's raised up for the purpose of destruction. And how does he act? It really is fitting of how he's described, how he's termed. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is repulsive, what he's doing. But I want you to notice a few things here that have changed since Paul wrote this. This person, still in the future, as Paul is writing in the first century AD, is going to sit down in the temple of God. As you think about this, and you think about the temple in Jerusalem, it's going to be a little hard to do today because the temple no longer exists. When Paul is writing, it did. Just a few short years later, in 70 AD, Titus came in with the Romans, and really God judged the Jews for their rebellion against him, and Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was absolutely uh, flattened, leveled. 
and then followed by centuries of just kind of being the trash pit of the Middle East. Now for nearly 2000 years, there has been no temple. And I think that's an explanation for why there's so much discussion around things like this. So is there ever gonna be a temple again? Did this happen in 70 AD? There are people who believe that this was completely fulfilled in 70 AD. I think that position has lots of problems biblically. But you understand why people would ask that question or things like, no, the Jews don't even own the land. No Jews even live in this place. How could this happen? Paul must have meant something different than the son of destruction sitting in the temple. Well, then the Jews did get the land. So maybe we can just take God at his word. But also note that this person is found elsewhere in scripture. And we're very short on time. But I invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 11. And I want you to see a definite progression here. As Paul talks about someone exalting him above every so, exalting himself above every so called God or object of worship, taking his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, I want you to see that Paul has something definitely in his mind. He's not just uh, pulling this out of thin air. I believe God has given him instruction about a very particular matter. If you want to talk about Daniel chapter 11 later, we can do that. It's a very interesting chapter. There's a lot of discussion over who this is talking about. I believe this is the same man still in the future. Daniel eleven thirty six. Then the king will do as he pleases. This is, Paul summarizes this. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And then Daniel had some revelation given to him about what else he did. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, and it's very interesting to read about. But there's no historical person that fulfilled this. This is still in the future. But you see there that Paul is definitely drawing on this language. I want you to turn back to Daniel chapter 9. I believe we're talking about the same person. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. This is in Daniel's 70th week, which I believe is the, the seven-year period of the tribulation. He, this, this one, the Antichrist is who we're talking about. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. I believe this is seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. That's at the temple. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate or causes horror, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Some have called this the abomination of desolation. Now we're going to do a little bit of a chain of references here. Jesus refers to this event in Matthew 24. If you'll hang with me, we will move quickly through this. Don't intend to draw this out. I believe Jesus explains this. What is the abomination of desolation? What ends the sacrifices in the temple? Some look at a historical figure who did some terrible things in the temple, sacrificing swine flesh on the altar. I believe that was just a premonition of what's to come, just a, a, 
preparation for the final abomination of desolation. Matthew 24, 15. Jesus, referring to that passage in Daniel 9, the Antichrist, coming into the temple, putting an end to the sacrifices. What puts an end to it? Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. And then I believe Jesus says, let the reader understand. If you have a red letter Bible, that's in black. I had someone suggest, and I think it's very convincing that Jesus could have even said this. What is it that puts a stop to the sacrifices? It's when the Antichrist goes into the holy place where he does not belong. He is the abomination of desolation, where he does not belong. And I believe Paul is explaining this further. What is he doing there? That man of lawlessness, that son of destruction, he opposes in the holiest place of the temple and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. The Antichrist, the picture here, I believe, as it's unfolded through Revelation, first through Daniel with part of the picture, Jesus fills it in that it's the man himself. And then Paul, I believe, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, fills in what's going on. The Antichrist goes into the temple, which will exist, goes into the holy place and declares himself as God, displays himself as being God. This is the height of arrogance. This is totally opposed to God. There have been those who have done this before. If you read, we don't have time, but if you read in Isaiah 14, you may have the cross-reference, or Ezekiel 28. There have been kings who have been this arrogant before, but this will be unmatched. But about all this, Paul says, let no one in any way deceive you. That was my detour to try to answer some questions. But now we come back to what Paul is saying. He's pointing to the order. Don't be deceived. I think he's challenging. Who will you listen to? Who will you listen to? Deception destroys as it loosens your grip on the truth. It can do this, and it has roots in error. But I think by his final question, you see, thirdly, that deception really dilutes the truth. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Deception thrives on forgetfulness. It thrives on distance. Do you not remember? The devil knows the power of undiluted truth in the life of a Christian or in the preaching of a Christian. When it's undiluted, it's powerful. When it's watered down, doesn't do much. This is like when you give a kid orange juice and you don't want him to have all that sugar. So you give it to him one part orange juice and five parts water because you don't want the sugar sugar rush, right? Satan knows the power of undiluted truth. He can water it down. If he can make it gospel light, it won't have the same impact. Really speaks to the power of the truth and the power of the truth of Christ's return. If we remember it, if we meditate on it, if we preach it, that will turn your life upside down. 
as God ch changes you, it'll turn the world upside down, won't it? That's what it's done. While I was still with you, he's distant. Paul is distant. They've forgotten. They haven't. Th this question that's been raised, did Paul say? Did God say? It's happening again. So be steeped in the truth. There are mysteries, and I've attempted to explain one, and please understand, it is a fumbling attempt. There are mysteries that take work to even get close to understanding, but the Bible is not full of mysteries. The Bible is clear. The Bible is clear, and Christ is coming again. So be watchful, be discerning, be growing in the truth. What we're aiming at is, is stability, Christian maturity in the truth. And that requires constant exposure to good teaching, a growing understanding, and a growing grasp of truth. And at all times, the touch point must not be the word of Pastor John. It must be the scriptures. That's the point that Paul is driving home. He's referring to his own word, but it's not even the word of Paul. It's Paul is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is writing inspired scripture. Paul is writing Bible. He's pointing they don't have a Bible that looks like this with covers, but now we do. He's pointing them to the Word. So is there Russian disinformation in the world? I don't know the answer to that. Well, maybe we shouldn't concern ourselves so much with that as we should with the devil's misinformation campaign. We know that's real, don't we? And it's not just targeting the United States of America. He targets Christians. Deception destroys as it loosens the Christian's grip on the truth. It really can rattle your faith and lead you onto a dangerous road of apostasy. And it really often is error mixed with truth. Some of it sounds good. Some of it seems reasonable. It flies under some of our checks and guards but it's got its tentacles in error. And it really is aimed at diluting the truth. It waters it down. It takes the force out of unmixed truth. So who will you believe? Do you cling to the sure word of God above all? We, we really do honor God and find great comfort for ourselves when we believe him over everyone else. Let's pray. Father, your word is true and it's reliable. And there are things about the future that we can't see the future. We only know what you have given us glimpses of. Lord, we do want to understand that the best that we can. But even if our understanding falls short and we're even frustrated in our attempts to kind of understand all the ties across scripture that we could find, help us not forget to be watchful, watchful against the devil now, watchful for Christ's return, being purified as we wait for him. Help us to be pure as he is pure. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.